This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is present. And Jonathan, we are really exceeding ourselves here. We have another international guest with a PhD. Well, we had Alex Epstein last week, and uh, I do hope everyone enjoyed that that episode. So he made the moral case for fossil fuels. Mm. Our guest today is going to make the scientific case for sex differences. Yeah, there you go. So don't t- don't tell us we're a one trick pony alt right podcast. We care deeply about these ideas. Oh goodness! If you're listening to this for the first time, that is not a description of our show. That's a description from the detractors of our show. Yes, indeed. So if you are new here, this the show is about ideas, and we are from South Africa, where ideas are really frowned upon. Yes, because tradition and culture and those sort of things override a lot of new ideas that could help us. Mm. But we are trying to make a difference here in a small way. Absolutely. So if postmodernism wins in your country, South Africa, what it might look like. We are the post-apocalyptic wasteland after that. So imagine social justice, social justice activists, but in government, that is what South Africa is becoming <laughs> it's a fair very description. quickly. Fair, fair description. All right. So um, should, we, uh, should we get on Jonathan, with the show? please go ahead. Our guest this week is Deborah So, um, Dr. Deborah So. She has a PhD in sexual neuroscience. She's a science journalist and a columnist for Playboy.com and the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's largest, uh, well, national newspaper. Uh, Deborah is, uh, has been very kind to come on the show from Toronto. She's uh, speaking to us um, sort of morning, early afternoon, her time. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, welcome to the Renegade Report. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Yeah, so um, let's uh, let's get a little bit into... Your educational background, um, sexual neuroscience, that's not exactly uh, the most common of degrees uh, and certainly not a PhD in sexual neuroscience. What does that involve? Uh, so it's a burgeoning field. Uh, for my dissertation, I use brain imaging techniques. So this includes structural MRI and functional MRI to look at human sexuality. And more specifically, my area of research expertise was in paraphilias, which is atypical sexual interests. Um, and hypersexuality, as well as sexual orientation. Uh, what would you define as atypical sexual interests? Basically, sexual interests that would not be considered, uh, statistically speaking, not as common. But I, I always emphasize by atypical, you know, we're not putting any sort of judgment on that. We're just saying it's not as prevalent in the general population, but that's not to say that, you know, it should should be considered, you know, wrong or deviant or anything like that. Right. I mean, it's, it's not a moral claim. You're just talking about the the size of that population who share those behavior, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of the actual interests themselves too, um, you know, some of them don't necessarily have any procreative value. So sort of the interest is why is it that some people find these things sexually interesting when they don't actually help uh, in terms of continuing on, you know, in terms of reproduction? Yeah. Well, just, just to, to kind of pause it there for a second, because just before we started recording, you mentioned that you're not really involved in the university anymore because of the kind of PC culture. And it's, it's interesting because science doesn't go out to necessarily make a political statement. It, it goes out to look at a hypothesis to either prove it or disprove it. Um, you know, and, and, and then you've got another working hypothesis from there. 
Um, what, what do you find were the challenges and, and, and the issues um, in terms of this field? Because this seems like it's, it's, it's similar to uh, gender studies, uh, improper science gender studies, or, or, or even um, studies that have been done in race in the past where uh, or IQ or all of these things where it's such a um, socially tenuous issue uh, that it becomes very difficult to even talk about these things or try to research them. Right. So I agree. I mean, I think the best science is apolitical. I don't think that scientists should have to worry about how their findings are going to be interpreted. I mean, that's the reality we live in that, you know, that's just something that comes with being a researcher nowadays. But in terms of uh, my reasons for leaving, I mean, I love research and I always will. I loved being a sex researcher, um, but it is a field that is rife with um, stigma and unfortunately um, a lot of taboo. So there's a lot of pushback being a sex researcher from the get-go. Um, on top of it, I found in the last few years there's been uh, additional um, pushback from activists and in terms of ideology kind of seeping into the field and there's this pressure now for scientists to have to toe the party line in terms of their findings. So I just wasn't willing to play along. I mean, I'm very outspoken. Um, I started writing about issues within the field um, during my last year of my PhD. So I decided to continue doing that. Um, I was very lucky in terms of you know, during my graduate work, all of my mentors, my colleagues were very supportive of me in terms of the things that I was saying publicly and the things I wrote about. But I realized that um, if I stayed in academia, it wasn't always going to be that way. Not all institutions feel that way. Um, and that definitely, if I were working as an academic now, I would not be able to say the things that I do. So going to your question about gender studies, I mean, that's a completely different field. Um, they, I don't think have, I mean, they don't have any evidence. <laughs> no, no scientific <laughs> foundation. No, not at all. And I mean, if you try to engage in a conversation with them, they will happily tell you that they're, they don't believe that science should be uh, given any merit. Um, they don't believe in the scientific method. They often have no clue even as to what the science says on the given topics that they will argue with you about. Um, so that's uh, concerning. But also, you know, regarding previous studies that have shown you know, differences with regards to race and IQ. Um, and now that that's one analogy that's brought up a lot with regards to sex differences in the brain. And they compare it to eugenics or they compare it to being racist. But, you know, the way I see it is science will always be self-correcting. So I don't think the solution to bad science in the past is to do away with it entirely and say, well, let's not let's not do any of this anymore or to disregard mm. the entire field altogether it's to say, do more research so that we figure out what the truth is. Um, I think that's just a very easy and intellectually lazy way to combat something you don't like. And I, you know, I've written about how it makes more sense for us to, if we are afraid of sexism to target the sexism, don't target the research and, you know, the findings that come from the research. So, well, I mean, the central claim that you, you appear to make in many of your articles is that, uh, men and women are different. And my mind was blown because I had no idea that we were. Um, I'm being, very, <laughs> I'm being very sarcastic. Um, but I mean, based on the evidence that you provide in your articles on playwood.com, it's the only reason I go there, by the way, is to read your articles. Of course, just for the articles. Oh, thank Absol you. Absolutely. Um, so based on the, on the evidence that you, that you put within your articles, you link to the data, you link to the, to the papers. Um, what are the common, uh, pushbacks you get for stating, I won't call it a fact, so to speak, but for stating something that's been proven over and over again. 
I get mostly ad hominem attacks. People, because they can't really argue with the research. I mean, they will say naive things like they'll call it pseudoscience or they'll say, oh, we haven't, we don't have enough research to know. To which I say, well, we have thousands of studies. So do you really want to say that thousands of studies, you know, are all a fluke? Um, but in terms, you know, they'll attack my credibility. They'll say I have internal misogyny. They'll say that uh, <laughs> you know, my, my PhD is outdated or I'm a bigot. I'm, you know, transphobic, uh, which I don't consider myself to be any of those things. But, um, you know, I, I think it's a lot easier to attack the person than to actually go and, and read the studies yourself and come to your own conclusions. All right, let's let's get into the nitty gritty. What are the sort of claims that seem to upset people the most? What what are the things you've said, uh, which, as you say, are based on thousands of of research articles and 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 quite well established science? It seems to just set people off, especially in the current climate that we have uh, in the world, where you know differences are not, are not something we we aspire to anymore as humans. Hmm. There's been a lot. I would say probably the biggest one is uh, talking about sex differences in the brain, that men and women are inherently different on some level. And I always emphasize that just because we're different, it doesn't mean that one is better than the other. Um, but, you know, for some reason that that nuance seems to be lost. So, um, you know, showing that there are differences in brain structure, in brain function, um, and that these differences are not due to socialization. Or to say, to say, you know, even that gender is not a social construct. Like this is a really trendy <laughs> idea nowadays. Yes. And that that gender is a social social construct. Um, you've you've written articles in which you've spoken about, you know, different sizes in brains. The fact that you can um, tell just by looking at a brain that it's male or female. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah. Go for it. Well, I was going to say, you know, there was one study that came out in 2015 that got a lot of media attention. And I think this is part of why this misinformation keeps being um, propagated is this study said that there are no differences between male or female brains, that these brains exist along a continuum. But then another team of researchers actually reanalyzed the same data and found that you could tell a male and female brain apart on average 73 percent of the time. Um, so it's not accurate to say that there are no differences. Um, but you know, because this, when this study came out, the initial study came out, it sounds nice. You know, people liked the message that it was promoting. So it got a lot of attention. Um, and the follow-up study that kind of refuted it didn't receive any attention. I think myself, I might be the only journalist who has covered it. So, um, you know, within the field, everyone is aghast and, and saying, you know, how could, how could this study be published? Well, I can't speak for all my colleagues, but I will say I was definitely aghast um, there's definitely consensus within the field in terms of what the reality is, but mainstream media doesn't pick up on that. Um, and people aren't able to talk about that either because it's considered really controversial nowadays, which it shouldn't be. Yeah, it is strange that people that don't believe in objective truth, uh, you know, find the one study that proves the objective truth. It is quite strange. Yeah. It's very similar to that uh, vaccinations cause autism paper. You know, one paper just screws everything and to refute that amount of bullshit you know you need 10 times the effort to do it in i'm afraid yeah and i think people also they will if they do quote unquote read these studies they will go into it wanting to pick it apart to death and so I, you know i've said previously in one of my columns for playboy that if you want to pick a study apart badly enough you can so you know you have to look kind of take a step back and look at the whole field and go to it with 
an open mind as to what you're going to find as opposed to from a, a place of ideology. Yeah, so I actually want to get more into your your specific claims, so to speak. So you wrote a column, I believe it was on Playboy.com, about the gendered interests are predicted by the exposure to testosterone. Mm-hmm. So, uh, according to your to your piece, the high testosterone equals a preference for mechanically interesting things in that per, in that person. So, ordinary mm-hmm. ordinarily men, as men have more testosterone than women, and lower testosterone uh, is a preference for people oriented activities. And you extrapolate this evidence to suggest why men and women choose the jobs that they are in later in life. Yes. So, I mean, and you make the claim that that's why men dominate the STEM fields. Yeah, I think you're probably thinking of my defense of the Google memo. That was, uh, yeah, so (laughs) um, that one I wrote for the Globe and Mail. Do do you um, want to uh, just maybe recap quickly the the Google memo and then then go into that? Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners know the story, but perhaps for those who don't. Sure. So this was in August. Um, someone named James Damore, he was an employee at Google. He wrote um, an internal memo trying to help the company better understand why it is there's this, this discrepancy in terms of female employees at the company. Um, my understanding was that they were trying to increase um, you know, the ratio of women. And he went to the scientific literature and said, you know, maybe this discrepancy we're seeing is not due to sexism, but due to the fact that women just inherently find other things interesting. And that's why we are not seeing 50-50 in terms of women in STEM. So then this memo was leaked to the public um, and, you know, everybody was freaking out. Um, the majority of, of outlets, media outlets were saying that this memo said that women were biologically inferior or that they didn't belong in STEM, which is not what James was saying. Um, and so I wrote a column saying the scientific research that he cited is accurate. I have to say too, the first, when they first leaked his memo, they didn't even include the citations to the studies that he uh, was referring to. So, you know, that wasn't really fair. Um, so I went and I said, no, it's actually accurate what he was saying. Um, and so, yes, as you were saying with pre- prenatal testosterone exposure, um, higher levels are associated with more male typical interests. Most boys are are exposed to higher levels of testosterone in utero. So when they are born, they gravitate towards certain interests and certain behaviors, just as women uh, or girls tend to be exposed to lower levels. So they are they gravitate towards different interests. And so this leads to differences in occupational preference as well in adulthood. Right. And, and James Damore, the author, you know, stated that Google uses that science to promote advertising. To, to the clients, so he, mm-hmm. he was he wasn't sure why they cannot just uh, do what they do for advertising purposes, you know, internally and accept that there are differences anyway. But yeah, he that, got, he got fired for that. We've reached this point now where you really can't have any sort of rational discussion on this conversation, which is really bizarre because it's a fact based conversation. So I don't know why it's gotten to the point where it's considered so taboo now. I found it really disappointing to see the coverage that came out from when this happened. I mean, you have outlets that purport to be about science and technology ripping apart the scientific evidence or saying that calling it pseudoscience or saying it doesn't exist. It was just, it's a very bizarre, really weird, uh, weird experience. Yeah, indeed. I'm, I, I'm interested to understand these are evolutionary. I mean, I know you're not an evolutionary biologist, but a lot of this is, is, is evolutionary traits over, millions of years that we have evolved towards. Is, is that is that a fair statement? 
Yeah. And, and of course, there's individual differences, too. And I and I don't believe James, I think he said in the memo as well, he wasn't saying this is the case for every single person. But just on average, when you look at men and women in terms of distributions, on average, you see these differences. It's not accurate to say that there are no differences or that those differences are socialization. Sure. It's, it's speaking towards towards the mean of, 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 mm-hmm. of, of a group. Yeah. Um, so we've we've uh, evolved towards these these differences i'm i'm just interested because as you've been mentioning the culture the social um uh zeitgeist i suppose at the moment is one of uh, not speaking about these things or not accepting them as you mentioned science and technology websites uh, or 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 well uh, um, reputed news organizations are denying sort of basic scientific fact um but it, at the end of the day, we're not really going to get away from, from this because if it's literally how our brains function at a, uh, a physical um, level, it's how they formed and, and at a functional level, um, you, you, can, you can try to deny it. But aren't you going to get overridden by your biology? That's the thing. I mean, it's, it's very evident. It's interesting because some people do reach out to me um, and say – we know that the science is legitimate, but we claim that it's not because we don't want it to be used to justify sexism. So in that case, I say, well, you should call it the people who are being sexist. Don't pretend that the science is inaccurate. Um, but like you're saying, you know, it's, it's, it's true. So it's not something that we're going to be able to escape by any means. Um, and what I find worrisome too is that this is what kids are being taught in university now. And I think you know, these kids don't know that they're being taught uh, what they're being taught is politically motivated. So when they go into the real world and they see that these differences exist, I'm wondering, you know, what kind of interpretation they have of that. Do they think that it's then, you know, a coincidence or, you know, it, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. So we'll see what's going. I'm curious to see where we're going to be in 10 years, because right now I think the research is going to suffer. We're not going to be actually moving forward in terms of our understanding or in terms of yeah. where we could be going. Um, which is really disappointing. But at the end of the day, I think truth will prevail. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with, with truth, though. If, if no one believes it, does it really exist at the end of the day? <laughs> um, but, I mean, Deborah, going back to, to those, the purveyors of um, the, the people who do follow research such as yours and acknowledge, you know, sex differences, they are popular like right-wingers not all of them by any means but the ones who are popular the Malayanopolises and the Gavin McInnesses of the world and whereas I think they are entertaining they are really not the best uh, they don't have the best tone when discussing these ideas so it is you can you can see why people would say yes but it promotes sexism and they point to Milo Yiannopoulos and they point to Gavin McInnes you know who are saying these things that are you are saying sex you know sexes are different so there is a little bit of a point there where the the messaging of of what you do could be better but unfortunately no one seems to want to go to the scientists itself they just go to these you know alt-right pariahs on the wings <laughs> Yeah, I think part of I think part of the conversation could probably be helped if my colleagues could also speak more freely about this topic. But unfortunately, you know, experts, other experts in the field aren't able to because they have to worry about what the repercussions are going to be to their professional and personal reputations. They could lose their jobs for the things that I say as an academic. Someone could easily lose their job if there's enough of pushback, which is 
scary. Um, so, you know, I think but, but with is, regards to... Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry Deborah, but is it not... Uh, I mean, I don't want to infer too much, but is it, is it not cowardice in a way? Um, I mean, people who, who are like you, who have, you know, moved away from academia for those very reasons, have done remarkably well. Well, well the ones that are known, uh, Jordan Peterson, James DeMore got fired, and I think now he's been on every single most popular podcast in the world. His, his message has reached, you know, millions of people around the world, whereas before he was just a, an engineer at Google. So I think there's a lot of, um, how, can I, how can I say, there's a lot of reward for stepping out and for being honest. I can see what you're saying. I think it depends on the individual person. I mean, for me, it's a personality thing. I think I, I generally don't really care what people want to say about me. Do you know what I mean? So not it's not for everybody. I do face a lot of criticism and pushback, but it doesn't bother me. Whereas I think for someone else who may be, it may not be, you know, something that they want to deal with. Um, but I, I agree. I do tell people that, you know, you should speak up because we're reaching the point now that if you expect other people to do it for us, it's not going to happen. And this is why these ideas become more and more entrenched in our society, because no one is saying anything to the contrary. Even though people definitely aren't in agreement with these ideas, if you don't say so, no one knows that. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, I just have to say, I come from a science background, and I think a lot of scientists are very reserved people who have never mm -hmm. really wanted any kind of fame. They They really don't want trouble. Um, there, okay. there is some truth to a lot of, you know, the nerd from school who kind of stuck to himself and, and didn't really get too involved in anything, um, becoming the scientist and, and, and those types of people are relative introverts and they're, they really don't want to cause trouble. They, they don't want to be James Damore overnight. Um, mm -hmm. that would be their worst nightmare. So, um, <laughs> while I, I hear what Ramon is getting at. Um, and maybe there is no choice anymore. Maybe you don't have a choice. If you want to, if you want to be a scientist, then you have to represent your science fully. And maybe that's where we get, we're getting to. But I think a lot of the personalities involved in science are very reserved um, people. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think too, I mean, what scares me the most is now that we are seeing the science that's coming out is actually being infected by this ideology as well. So you, you know, as I mentioned that one particular study, and I don't mean to, you know, pick on that particular team of researchers, but um, definitely there's this trend now that we are seeing more and more research coming out that you will not see any findings that support um, differences between the sexes. Um, if there are differences between the sexes, that it's uh, due to socialization. That's what the authors will say. It won't be due to biology, or they'll really emphasize the role of socialization in sex differences. So um, that's obviously what gets passed down to the media and spread into our culture, and that's how people talk about these issues to the point now where I think people are genuinely confused as to what the truth is. And the more and more of these studies that get published and get uh, disseminated, the more and more are the way we talk about these these realities um, are going to be skewed. All right. I mean, I, I agree with you there, but my question, which might be a bit of a strange one, what is the reason for trying to understand the differences between the sexes? Um, because for an example, race and IQ, the race and IQ question, I don't find that to be a very helpful question because the consequences of those are often negative and it's possible to have a conversation about it anyway. And, I don't think it matters in, in the wider sense 
what ra- what race and the correlation of IQ have to do with each other. So in terms of this research that you are doing, wh- why is it important to know there are gender difference, uh, sex differences rather? I think ultimately to help us have happier, more successful and fulfilling lives. Um, so say something like neuroticism, which was another trait that, uh, that was discussed in the Google memo that people got really upset about. I mean, that term was referring to, it's a personality psychology term and it refers to, um, likelihood to experience negative moods. So on average, women have been shown to have a higher predisposition towards that. I don't think that should be something that's seen as negative or controversial. Um, and if that's the case, then we should offer, you know, better support for women so that, um, that they can cope with it, you know, and, um, same with differences with regards to men, um, in, in areas that they may differ from women. So, um, in terms of also better understanding why we behave the way we do. So say if we pretend that men and women are identical, like our sexual systems are not similar. So that's why you see differences with regards to dating and sexual behavior. But if we pretend that men and women are the same, then it's really confusing when we try to actually under, cause we see that the behavior is not the same. So, you know, it's just, it's just doesn't, I don't think it helps us have any sort of realistic understanding of why we are the way we are. If we don't actually look at what the truth is. And in this case, we are different. Yeah. Consider my point rebuffed. <laughs> All right. So, so you've, you've mentioned, you know, from the time we were in the womb, um, we, uh, we're already kind of being programmed in a way. Our brains are being programmed in, in, in to, to react and to think a certain way. And testosterone is, is so far has been shown to be the major hormone that does that. Um, we've now got a situation where, you know, transgenderism has become a, a very hot topic in the last uh, year, two years. Uh, we've got situations where kids, you know, four, five, six-year-olds are saying to their parents, uh, girls are saying, well, I feel like a boy, and boys are saying, I feel like a girl, which I'm sure is thing something that's been happening for centuries among children, and their parents have probably just said, that's very nice, you're a boy or you're a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you were born as, so deal with it. Um, now the opposite is happening. If the child wants to be a girl and they happen to have been uh, born male, um, the parents are, some parents are going along with it, and uh, to quite catastrophic points where they're even allowing children to have uh, hormone therapy. Um, can you give us a sense of 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 what that might do to 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 children and and ultimately to those adults? Yes. Yeah, so this is another topic that I write quite frequently about. Um, so with regards to the research literature, um, something called desistance. So this idea that the majority of children who experience gender dysphoria will outgrow their dysphoria by puberty. So when we look at all studies that have ever been done on this topic, all 11 studies, whether it's, you know, more contemporary studies or older studies, if you look at small sample sizes or larger sample sizes, doesn't matter who the team of researchers was, um, consistently between 60 and 90% of these kids will outgrow their, dys- their dysphoria um, they're more likely to grow up to be gay adults, so they won't be transgender in adulthood. So bearing this in mind, it doesn't make sense for young children, prepubescent children, to be transitioning um, because the, it's likely that they're not going to feel that way once they reach puberty. Yeah, all right. So so the, 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 there's real damage being caused to these kids. 
that that a fair statement? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, the idea with transitioning is it should ultimately help relieve feelings of dysphoria. So if someone is going to, even a social transition in children has been shown that it can be, um, you know, quite an emotionally difficult time to detransition from it. So if these kids feel a certain way, they reach puberty and desist, it doesn't make sense for them to have transitioned before that point because they're going to end up detransitioning. So, um, yeah. Ultimately, you want sorry, you want the intervention to be something that's going to be beneficial to the person. Also, you know, another thing is that clinicians nowadays, from my understanding, they're not actually asking these questions to determine whether the dysphoria a child is feeling is actually about is actually gender dysphoria or is it due to other things that are going on in the child's life. So again, you know, it doesn't make sense for someone to transition if it's not actually going to solve where their unhappiness is coming from. But sorry, I cut you off. No, I, th- that's great. Um, you know, there's a lot of. Uh, sort of public knowledge around our personalities and around our brains being formed. There's been a lot of data published around, for example, children being given alcohol, uh, you know, drinking alcohol before your sort of mid twenties is actually has significant effects on, uh, can have significant effects on, on your brain, on your thinking, mm-hmm. on your personality. Um, your frontal lobe is not fully kind of formed until your late twenties. Um, so mm-hmm. in other words, you are not who you are until your late twenties. Um, yeah, it, it, is all of that kind of being ignored in in a lot of this this transgender debate? Because it would seem to me that um, there's an argument to be made that you probably shouldn't settle on a career until you're sort of in your late twenties, um, and s- setting your setting or se- selecting your 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 new gender that you want to be in even you know your early teens it seems like a very bad idea. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's really, we don't let kids get tattoos. We don't let them drive. We don't let them drink, but we're letting them make life altering, potentially life altering decisions in the name of progressiveness. Um, so definitely, I mean, most kids, one thing that people look at is when a child says, I am, you know, the opposite sex. So if a little boy says, I am a girl, that should be taken as a sign that he really is a girl or she is a girl and, um, that she should transition. But, for a lot of these kids, they just don't have the vocabulary to say, often it's the case that they just want to do things that the opposite sex does. So, you know, I've written previously about how a little boy may want to play with the Easy Bake Oven. And so instead of saying that, he will say, well, because adults in his life may say, well, you can't do that because that's what girls do. So then he'll say, well, I am a girl. And so that's being taken at face mm-hmm. value now instead of trying to understand, well, why do you say these things? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This reminds me a lot of, of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's work uh, back in the when, – when was he around? 18th century. You know, the blank slate. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we are born pure and then, you know, society corrupts us indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, based on the knowledge that you have working in academia, I, where, where did this new resurgence of the blank slate come from? Because that's been debunked many a time and latest by – uh, Stephen Pinker, who wrote a whole book about it, an excellent book, I might add. So where is this coming about? Uh, do people um, – yeah, I just want to know where this ideology comes from. With regards to, um, you know, with the gender dysphoria in children, um, I'm trying to think where would it have – I mean, there's been a longstanding kind of animosity between transgender activists and sexology with regards to this issue. So this is an, another reason why you will never see any um, sexological experts 
speaking out against transgender ideology because it's we have an ugly history um, where activists, if they are unhappy with what you say, they will really go after you, try to ruin your life. Um, one of my colleagues, Michael Bailey, who is a professor at Northwestern University, um, came very close to having his life destroyed by activists because he published a book that they didn't like. They didn't like what he had to say. So um, from that, more recently, uh, Ken Zucker, who is a colleague of mine here in Toronto, his clinic at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, um, he used to uh, have a gender identity clinic there for children. Um, that was shut down due to pressures from activists. So that's why also, you know, clinicians really feel a pressure now that they can't question a child um, if they see if the child comes in and says that they feel this way because they, they they too don't want to you know worry about losing their jobs and and also being basically uh, um, you know castigated by the public and also in in media reports as being a bigot or being transphobic. So I'm not sure that answers your question, but it's it's basically bullying. That's ultimately why um, this movement. And, and I should emphasize, I do believe that transgender people deserve equal rights, but I don't think the way that activists have gone about um, attacking people in sexology for legitimate research. I don't think that's the way to do it. Yeah, Jordan Peterson once made the observation that um, when he first became famous to, against Bill C-16, I believe it was called, um, mm-hmm. he received a lot of correspondence from transgendered people, and many of them actually supported his views. Um, the view, the view, their view was that I was a woman or a man, and I transitioned to a woman or a man, and I want to be called he or she. That mm-hmm. was, that's the whole point of the transition. It's not to be called some strange pronoun. So to have a law that mm-hmm. says that you must call me some strange pronoun if I, if I, uh, you know, if I want you to, goes against the very essence of my transition. Mm-hmm. And the thing, too, with that bill, I don't feel that it actually deals with the underlying discrimination that trans people face or gender variant people face, because now people are just afraid to say what they really think. And so it goes underground or they hide what they really think. Um, and you're not actually challenging these, you know, the maybe um, discriminatory views that people hold. Yeah, no, very true. I mean, we, we, we are basically free speech fundamentalists. Well, I am. Jonathan's a bit more, mm-hmm. a bit more conservative, but, uh, we agree with that statement. Um, the, the next question I actually wanted to ask you was, why is it the transgender community? Most of them, it seems like there's, there's just only activists that are actually dominating the narrative around this. Uh, I don't think transgender people themselves have been asked universally what they believe mm. so i i assume many would believe what you say as 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 an authority figure in this field but the, do, the, the, but, the sorry, yeah. sorry, but the activists make the news unfortunately yeah i do agree it's it's likely a very vocal minority as it often is the case with um you know controversial issues or uh, political movements and i do understand where they're coming from because i think with the topic of desistance in particular. So if we say, you know, the majority of these kids who feel this way eventually outgrow it, does that, can that then be used to justify, um, you know, not allowing adults to transition or to gatekeep um, medical interventions for adults? Um, so it creates, it can create a slippery slope, but I, the research shows that children are not the same as adults in this regard. So it's just not appropriate for us to, make the same assumptions, even if there is this chance that 
it, again, the, there's a chance that the research will be used for nefarious reasons. Yeah, well, there, there, there is a chance. It, it just, it, it's, it's, it, it doesn't seem a, a good enough reason not to, not to be, be, be going ahead anyway. Um, I wanted to talk about another area of your, your, uh, your expertise, which you, you've been into and, uh, which is the paraphilias. Um, maybe you mm-hmm. can, you can explain a bit about that, uh, as a concept. Uh, and then, you know, there's all these stories, they sort of, some of them are, are historical stories and some of them are more urban legend about people kind of getting brain tumors and, and then behaving very strangely, um, there's some with regards to violence and there's some with regards to sexual behavior. Uh, and then, you know, remove the tumor or the person dies and, and then they discover this, this tumor. So can you speak towards paraphilias and, and maybe some of the urban legends and, and the historical cases? Yeah. So as I mentioned, a paraphilia is an atypical sexual preference. Um, it is someone's primary sexual preference. So that is for them how they enjoy sex. Um, and they don't really enjoy engaging in sex without that particular, um, interest or behavior. Um, so I'm trying to think of cases where you mentioned there. I remember hearing one case of someone who I believe was pedophilic. So he was sexually attracted to children and there was, there was something about a tumor. I'm not sure if that's the case that you're referring to. Yeah. Well, there was some sort of, there's, there's a famous case in the U S uh, in the, I think it was the fifties, uh, with that was the guy who one day just went, um, I think university of Texas or, 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 or something like that and went and, and it was a mass shooting, um, actually. Um, and when they subsequently did an autopsy on, on the guy, um, who had otherwise been completely fine up until a couple of months before that, uh, and before he started behaving strangely, uh, and they did an autopsy and found a tumor. And then, yes, there, there is the other example. I can't remember the exact details, but the same story. A guy, I think, who was married with two kids. Um, there was no history of abuse. Uh, he was an uh, upstanding citizen and all the rest of it. Uh, and then, uh, subsequently, um, you know, became, well, was, 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 had these feelings towards children and, and, and was caught, uh, I think, um, engaging in some sort of acts. Um, and, uh, and was diagnosed with a brain tumor and then the brain tumor was removed and, and he no longer had those proclivities. Right. I remember this now. So I, I should mention, I have written about pedophilia previously. I, I used to do research uh, on this topic and I really want to emphasize that there's a difference between pedophilia and child molestation. So pedophilia refers to the sexual interest in children or prepubescent children, um, whereas child molestation is the actual act. So there are some men who are pedophilic but who do not abuse children. So um, when I've written about this on this topic, I emphasize that group of men who, um, you know, the research I've worked on, we've shown that pedophilia is something that is biological. It has to do with differences in the brain. So it's not a, it's not a choice and it's not something that can be changed. So um, from that perspective, it makes sense for us to look at prevention and looking at, look at offering support to these men so that they don't offend because there are some pedophiles who, are committed to never offending against children. So with regards to this particular case, um, I believe what I remember is that he, it sounds like he probably had these uh, preferences prior to the tumor, but he was able to inhibit them. And I think the tumor may have been in the frontal lobes. So I'm not sure if you just said that, but um, so that is what kind of impinged on his ability to inhibit, um, inhibit mm. acting on it. Yeah. And so, um, 
you know, that speaks again to how, I mean, when you look at, um, at that preference, I mean, I, I think most of us would agree no one would choose that for themselves. So from a, it, it makes sense why, you know, f- from a research perspective in terms of what we found, why uh, biological correlates could, could make sense. I mean, an interesting externality of, of that research, because I also, also read something quite similar uh, a while ago, that pedophilia is a condition, and your know, molestation is the act, and we must, you know, differentiate the two, which I fully agree with, by the way. But, so th- that research has, has consequences for the justice system in a way, because if, I mean, how difficult I can imagine the difficulty in going to a police station or to a therapist and saying, I have these sexual urges for little children, but I really don't want to do it. And if perhaps one day inhibition is lost for two seconds or two minutes and it happens, is that man really a criminal or is it just a case of trying to, to support him and fighting these desires? That's a tricky thing for the justice system to, to balance. I could see that. I still think ultimately, and you know, the act is the act, regardless of where it's coming from. Um, there are some people who will abuse children who are not pedophilic, so they will abuse kids because they are, say, antisocial or because um, they aren't able to have access to um, a consenting partner of of an age category that they are interested in, so say in adults. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure if that really speaks to what you're asking. In terms of, you know, where do we draw the line in terms of whether someone should be held responsible for their behavior. Is that what you were asking? Well, well, yeah. To what degree can we, I mean, if it's biological, um, Mm. it's difficult to say that this is a choice, of course. Well, I don't know. I don't know if the two would be conflated like that necessarily, because there are a lot of things that we may want to do even outside of sex that we don't do because it would hurt somebody else or would harm someone else. So, um, you know, it's definitely, I wouldn't say it's easy for these men by any means. And I think people get very upset at me when I say that because, um, you know, I've received pushback in the past for saying that we should have sympathy for these men because ultimately they have to be celibate for life without any sort of um, support from anyone. And often they can't even tell their closest friends or family. Um, and also with mandatory reporting laws, it's also very difficult. In North America, I'm not sure what it's like where you guys are, but if they go into and tell a therapist that they have the, these feelings often the therapist will feel that they should yeah, report obligated um, just to, to err on the side of caution. Yeah. So it's, it's not an easy way of life to live like that. Um, so, but at the same time, you know, I, I don't think we can persecute people for having thought, you know, in terms of thought crimes, but I do think ultimately if behavior is people, people's behavior should be held accountable. Okay. So I want to get a little bit then into the neuroscience versus free will. Um, I'm sure you know Sam Harris's view on on uh, free will. Uh, I, I don't know where you where you fall. Um, his, Maybe uh, if you could give me a quick synopsis, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't want to st- strawman the guy. I'll try steel man him. Uh, essentially, his argument is that we we don't have free will because essentially our brains are um, chemical pits, um, and the decisions we make, the impulses we have are a reaction, they're a chemical reaction. They're a result of whatever it happens to be, dopamine, serotonin, and whatever 
a whole bunch of other chemicals mixing together, um, and and that's what what ultimately guides us. Um, and so uh, we don't really have any true free will. Um, we're merely driven by by chemicals in our brain, um, and we don't we don't make the choices. Um, what what would you think about that? Uh, I could see that being true on some level, but I guess I mean I always say that environment and socialization and life experience can play a role, but it can't override biology. So I suppose on some level I agree with with what he's saying um, because I do think biology is quite powerful. Um, but that's not to say that our lives are meaningless. I think we can still have meaningful lives and acknowledge that um, some aspects or a large portion of it may actually be out of our control. Mm, and, and perhaps the meaning is is trying to override some of those things. I mean, you know, back to the pedophiles again, you know, the 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 meaning in the, in their in someone like that's life maybe in being a, in trying to control it and 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 succeeding in that um uh, and i suppose that's when you override the biology because it isn't maybe i'm being a, a little bit too romantic here but isn't that really the difference between humans in many ways and 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 animals um especially the lower you know lower thinking creatures um, in is that we actually consider our thoughts and then and our actions before we we engage in them true yeah but i would argue even in say men with pedophilia um it has to do with inhibition ultimately which has biological correlates so those who have an easier time you know not offending against children um it likely has to do and studies have actually shown that they do have a better capacity for inhibition. So that does kind of go back to neuroanatomy and neurofunction. All so right. I guess there's no, esca- yes. there's no escaping it. <laughs> there's no escaping biology. Yes, yes. No, I think we both agree on, on that point. I want to get through to, to neuroscience itself, and especially like the fMRI and, and the deductions one makes from those scans. Um, now, personally speaking, Neuro- neuroscientists have used fMRIs to, to try to deduce many, many things about, about humans. And sometimes it comes across as a bit pseudoscientific and other times it appears to be quite, quite clear what the, what the deductions are. Uh, what, are the, what is your view on the general sense of neuroscience? I mean, is it still at a stage where we're able to make definite conclusions about the results? I think it is. I think one thing that's been amazing about the field is that it has progressed so rapidly. So this technology, I mean, fMRI has only been around since the early 90s, but um, it's made huge strides, especially in recent years. So the field has come under attack. Um, there was one study that was published, uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, that they put a, a dead fish in the scanner and they said, look, the dead fish's brain lit up. Um, but I mean, since then, uh, you know, in terms of statistical analyses, they're much more stringent now. Um, I do think that neuroscience has a lot of um, validity and, in terms of, and potential in terms of where we can go in terms of understanding our, our behavior. Um, but we're, we're still not at the point yet, obviously, where we can look at individual differences with these technologies. But this is another thing, I mean, kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, that we have this technology available that we could do amazing things with. And instead we're being limited by these ideas. Um, that it's just, it's really disappointing that, you know, I think we could learn so much more about the way we are um, if we didn't have these constraints. Yeah, we, we could. 
just on the fMRI thing um you know we have we have global ideas about what our brain does in certain parts of our brain and we have whittled that down to relatively small areas um but can we can we say enough it just there are some studies that seem to come out that make some very sort of broad claims about you know large swathes of the population um either on uh, our uh, views on on advertising or our political views now I, i've i've seen some stuff published on that mm. um there's uh, stuff on you know sugar the people who sell sugar is 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 worse than heroin for example mm. love to use fmris which show the brain lighting up uh, in certain places and it lights up brighter than it does with heroin uh, and and i look at that and to me, it's that's very bad science, or it's a very bad interpretation of the science. The mm-hmm. science itself is not very bad. Um, so, I, 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 my only concern is is that it's the, we still have a, a lot to learn about the brain, a lot to learn about brain function, uh, and you know, seeing things light up sometimes uh, tends towards people misinterpreting, you know, towards their confirmation bias. Yeah, I could see that. And I think, too, because neuroscience is considered very trendy right now, um, people sometimes get really excited about a study um, just because it involves brains and they may not be they may not actually look at, you know, are the methods strong um, or take a step back and look at does this even make sense? So, you know, I think it's important that people still be critical and, um, you know, hold it to the same standard as any other scientific field. Um, I guess I, I I found you know just seeing in the last few years how how much things have changed and in terms of sex research as well in terms of what the technology is allowing us to understand it's really exciting but I I hear what you're saying as well that it seems like every single question on this planet now is being interrogated using neuroimaging whether it's actually beneficial or not. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm getting at. Yeah, I like the way the scientist makes our question sounds a lot more intelligent than when we stated it. Well, she does write columns yeah. as well. So, so um, what? what uh, give us a sense, uh, just a bit closer to home, um, about uh, Canada and um, the general atmosphere. You write uh, in the Globe and Mail. It's uh, the, you know, as we said at the beginning of the show, this Canada's largest newspaper and. And uh, you're writing some pretty controversial stuff. Uh, it it it's not actually controversial, but it's 2017, and so it's yeah. controversial. Um, what's the the reaction in in what is becoming a relatively uh, progressive, and I don't say that in a, in a good way, um, country, um, which which very much errs towards uh, social justice causes. I definitely see, so being in Canada, you know, we look to the States and I see what's going on in the States definitely coming up here. Um, I've written about free speech in terms of academia and how um, censorship is becoming a bigger part of a problem here um, to the point where, you know, universities are now shutting down free speech events. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of I don't know. I'm trying to think of what I could tell you. I'm very lucky in that, you know, the outlets I write for, they know what I'm about. So I'm very grateful to my editors for giving me uh, a forum to to say the things I want to say. Um, I've written predominantly for American outlets up until probably about a year ago. So, uh, you know, Canadians, I guess we have a, a reputation for being 
polite. So I don't know if that's going to factor into, <laughs> into things as well that, you know, maybe it'll become even more problematic up here because no one wants to say anything to the contrary. Um, yeah, we'll see. But I am, I am worried, especially with regards to how it's been affecting academia. Um, I didn't think that, you know, it was going to be to the point where we do have people now coming in to talks they don't like and they will use horns to silence speakers. Um, they will use threats and intimidation. I don't think it should ever get to that point. I think it's fine if you want to disagree with what someone says, but people should never be made to feel physically unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, do we have that here? I don't, I don't know. Scientists are not under attack here. It's just academics and white people generally. Well, we did, <laughs> we, we did have people at uh, one of our top universities saying that uh, science should be decolonized and, 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 oh. uh, gra- gra- gravity doesn't really exist and, and lightning after all is, is under God's control and uh, some and, other crazy oh stuff. And no one can explain why someone in rural areas, uh, Praise for rain and then it rains the next day. No one can explain that through science. <laughs> so so we, we've got a bit of craziness going on Thankfully, here. Thankfully, that video went viral and the whole movement just shut down the next day. It was great. Great trophy. Yeah. Um, wow. So, Deborah, last thing for you and, and last thing for your – maybe for your opponents. Can your opponents use the research that you are doing to achieve their goals? I know they're anti-science generally speaking, but can they use your research to achieve gender equality or – or whatever else the goals might be. I I do believe so. I mean, one thing I find there's so much time and energy that's going into, say, from the research perspective of these teams, they go in and they're basically going through every single part of the brain and saying, look, this part of the brain is not sexually dimorphic. This part of the brain is not sexually dimorphic. All, and I, in my mind, you could go through every part of the brain and show it's absolutely identical between men and women. That's still not going to take care of sexism. I don't think sexist people say, you know, I would have thought women were inferior, but the research shows me something different. So I'm, I'm not going to be discriminate to discriminate against women anymore. You know, it, that's just not how it works. So I think all that time and energy could be put towards instead of, you know, creating, producing studies that show that men and women are absolutely identical to actually target the sexism and say, yes, there are these differences, but why is it that people take these differences as a sign that women are inferior or that women are less capable? Um, that's where I think the energy should be going. So I don't think that the research has to necessarily be, like I don't think the legitimate research has to necessarily be at odds with promoting equality. I think that's, that's I don't know, maybe an easier way of, of or maybe, a, I don't know, a lazier way of looking at it, but yeah. uh, that nuance is important to have. Oh, sure. No, equality is a, is a terrible value, in my opinion. But I do, I, I do like the fact that uh, these people infer that sexists will actually look at science as a means to justify their sexism. That's quite great. I can't imagine what? sexists reading scientific papers to justify <laughs> to justify the bigotry. That's quite funny. And to get get the citations right. Um, you know, the other thing too is people know on some level that men and women are different. So when you say, no, there are no differences, they just don't take you seriously anymore. Mm. So they, they won't even listen to the rest of your sentence. Well, well, They'll that, just say, yeah. 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 Well, that's the worldwide movement. You, you, you know, people, there's a whole bunch of fundamental truths being denied to people. You, you, you know, men and women aren't different. We're all the same. Um, mm-hmm. Genders are all the same. Um, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a whole bunch of them that that are, that are just kind of 
we're not allowed to say anymore. And I think that's a lot of the political backlash that, that, that's being seen and, and a move to the right in many places. Um, not necessarily that the right has all the answers, uh, but, uh, in that, that currently is the counterculture. And so yeah. <laughs> that's what's, what, what's attracting people because, uh, you know, on the right hand side of the aisle, you're allowed to say things like men are different to women. Men are on average stronger than women, for example. Women are on average better at, at, uh, child, uh, rearing. Uh, you know, the, the, these are. Or there are two sexes. Yeah, well, there are only two genders, yes, uh, released in the JFK files, I saw. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think, I think that people do fundamentally feel these things. Um, they know these things from their everyday interactions with people. Um, and, and look, I think the, one of the biggest problems is getting over the idea that that's negative. It's just, it's mm-hmm. just moving away from the idea that difference is negative, as you've, you, you've already alluded to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it, I think it's just much easier, you know, to kind of make these blanket statements and to say, um, you know, across the board, all of this is good and this is bad. Um, but also, as you were saying, you know, politically in terms of people shifting, um, who may consider themselves to be maybe more liberally thinking, but they find more of a home on the right. And I've written about this previously, too, that, um, you know, it, it builds resentment and it makes people feel like, one, you know, what's happening to the world. It's a very strange time to be in. But then also that those of us on the left who are not on board with this far left ideology say, well, I want to abandon the left then because what is happening, this is not what, this is not what we're on board with either. So it's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on definitely. And I think in terms of the larger political landscape as well. Yeah, absolutely. Ramon? Yes, thank you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I fully, I mean, I don't think there's one thing that I disagree with you with, uh, on within the past <laughs> hour, Deborah. So that's quite something. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> it is quite. And I think, well, I think, you know, if you're, if you believe in your ideas, you just have to, you just have to go and fight for them, I'm afraid. Um, and so, and if scientists can't do it, they must get people that can do it on their behalf, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, you're one of those people. So thank you so much and, uh, for coming on the show, for presenting your, your point of view. Um, and I thank, would, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's uh, absolutely great. Uh, obviously people can find your stuff at, uh, playboy.com. Uh, does the Globe and Mail publish your stuff online as well? Yeah, it's online. It's, it's, um, a monthly column, but you can follow me at Dr. Deborah So on Twitter and Facebook. I, was, I post all of my work there. So that's probably the easiest way for people to find me. I was just about to, uh, direct people oh. there. Um, yeah. So already done. And, uh, yeah, as always, uh, interesting, interesting stuff. And one of the people I follow for, for some really cool insights. So thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks, Deborah. Chat to you soon. Goodbye. Bye. So, uh, Ramon, another show in the bag. Yeah, and I don't think I've learned anything new, so to speak, but it just affirmed what I intuitely believe, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I think a lot of the concerns are, you know, the, there is neuroscience. It's, it's a science. People are trying to look for truths. Um, I know we, we, we need to have a conversation about truth, not right sure. now, but people are trying to look for what are the truths um, as uh, Deborah mentioned to try and make people happier so we can understand ourselves better. And, uh, I think the major concern is that that really is an area that's under, under threat. 
Yes, yes, especially as you said by <clears throat> activists who are vehemently anti-science. Now, I'm not vehemently pro-science. I think science is extremely useful. Mm. Um, but I think it is important to know the difference between the sexes. That that will that will get you know new new, pol- new state policies about things done right um we can understand why men are more prone to violence than women and what what can we do as a society to fix to, that to fix that mm. um things like that i think that's very important to uh to work on and it's done through the work of someone like like deborah so Absolutely. we need to, you know she needs all the support she can get and uh, we need to fight on her behalf as as you as you said as you as you quite vociferously said during the podcast you want people not to be cowards uh, we don't want you to be cowards, so we would like you to donate to us on Patreon. Uh, how how is that for 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 a segue? Especially for the legal fees. Not not that we're being sued anytime <laughs> soon, but just in case. You sure, never know. sure. So to our international <laughs> listeners, uh, a dollar goes a very long way here in uh, little old South Africa, or little new South Africa, and uh, you welcome to donate anything from one dollar up to us. We really appreciate it. If you're not able to do so, that's perfectly fine. We'd appreciate it if you subscribe to the show. Weekly, we've got both South African and international guests. And you can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore reports. On Facebook, we have a page and Renegade Report group where we have discussions about varied topics. Always very interesting. And that's the show for the week. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Bye. is cliffcentral.com